Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Samuel chapter 30, the first 15 verses. This is God's word. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed For the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Nebeb of the Carathites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. So ends the reading of God's word. Okay, kids, three to kindergarten. You're dismissed now for the little landing. Good morning, Faith Family at the Landing. Thanks for being here in worship and for dedicating children together. What a joy. I'm going to ask the Lord for help once again before I turn to his word and try to open it as God has helped me to study it. Make plain, Lord, the word of God to your people. Make plain the power that's here in this chapter. Give us joy as we seek you here in it. Give us joy and encourage our souls as we give ourselves over to you, the Lord and hero and master and central figure, not only of 1 Samuel, but of the whole Bible and of all of history. Be glorified in the way we love you and trust in you more because of this portion of Scripture. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. If I were asked to go to Ukraine and speak in a church there today, this would be the message I would preach. 
If I knew perhaps by some arrangement some Ukrainians were listening in through live stream or listening by recording later, and I knew that Ukrainians were listening or those who are undergoing tremendous war and invasion and hardship and affliction and atrocity around the world, this would be the message I would preach. If you're going through difficulty and hardship, if you're going through layer of loss upon loss upon loss, and you can't imagine taking any more, yet one more seems to be layered upon you, this message is for you. If you're going through a very easy time in life right now, take notes. (laughs) There's coming a day when you'll need this. As Howard read through verses 1 through 15, we'll focus on them with care and with detail today and we'll finish out the chapter, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. But you need to know the background that's happening here in 1 Samuel. We're coming to nearly the end of the book. And all through this book, there has been this glorious X across the book. Saul started as a very well-to-do, well-bred, well-born influential, tall, strong man, and he became king. And yet he has declined all the way through his kingdom to where in chapter 28 and 29, he's consulting a necromancer, a witch who speaks to the dead in direct disobedience to God. Samuel, the prophet that has anointed both Saul and David to be king in their order, rose from the dead as a vision shocking everyone, and said, Saul, because you didn't kill the Amalekites, as God told you, and because you have not sought God all your kingship and life, tomorrow you will fight with the Philistines and you and your sons will die. That war is just beginning 60 miles away from this chapter and these events where they take place in a place called Aphek. Saul and his two sons, one of them Jonathan, are precious, believing in God, beloved Jonathan, and they're going to war against the Philistines. And Saul knows that through the vision Samuel, he and his sons are going to die. And he goes to war anyway. That's happening over in Aphek. It's important to remember that. Second thing that's important to remember is that David had been running from Saul. Saul was jealous against David. He hated him because God was with David and everything David did went well and David seemed to get greater praise and accolades than Saul did. So Saul hated him with jealousy, trying to kill him for chapter after chapter. And yet David continually, by God's help, would escape. David has gone to live in a city that God appointed for David called Ziklag. For a, long, for a long time, you know, people didn't know if Ziklag really existed. Well, just in 2019, archaeologists found that Ziklag is actually a real place, and it's this beautiful green plateau where all the uh, vestiges of homes and buildings were all aiming toward each other, and they all had kind of an enclave, a resort, a peaceable, quiet place that those who dwelt there lived in. David's precious Ziklag was his escape from Saul, It happened to be, though, right in the middle of the Philistine territory, and he received favor from the king of the Philistines. In fact, he lived for a year and a half in Ziklag. The way he received favor is David was playing a double agent. He would go out on these raids, and he would kind of let it be known to the Philistines that he's going out to fight for them, but he actually went out to fight against the enemies of Israel. He was, after all, a Hebrew 
a member of Israel. So David was blessing Israel in secret, acting like their real king, even though he was in exile in Zeklag. And Saul, who was supposed to be acting for Israel, was violating Israel's laws and commands by seeking to speak with the dead. Saul was making a deal with the devil. And he heard only words of condemnation and death. David, in chapter 29, was in a very tight spot. Playing a double agent, he got himself in big trouble. The Philistines were moving in war against Saul. And David knew that he couldn't join them and fight with the Philistines to kill Saul. That would be evil. He would be raising his hand up against the anointed of God, which he vowed he would never do and had never done before. So he couldn't do that. But then he couldn't turn to the Philistines and say, sorry, you guys, I've actually been lying to you the whole time, and I'm really a traitor for, against you guys, so we'll be seeing you. No, they'd kill him instantly. God ordered it in his kind providence that the leaders of the Philistines said, you're Hebrews, we're not going to let you fight with us. You go back to Ziklag. And the king said, fine, I wish you would, but okay. If they won't fight with you, then you got to go back to Ziklag. So three days, that's important, three days David and his 600 men are leaving the battle that I just described between Saul, the Israelites, and the Philistines where Saul and his sons are going to die. He leaves that battle and they walk 60 miles Back to Ziklag. Takes three days. Now before I show you in these 15 verses ways in which God is ordering and protecting, I want you to see the big picture. The reason why Saul is continually brought low and David is continually exalted is because the entire point of the book of 1 Samuel is to show how God gave David a mighty king to Israel. And giving David a mighty king to Israel, he's preparing Israel and all who watch carefully what's happening in the Bible to receive David's forever son, Jesus Christ, as king. The point of looking at David is not just to try to pick out what David does and do that yourself. The point is to say, God, you had me and the landing And these families and children and all of the world in mind when you raised up David because you are creating in David a line that culminates in Jesus Christ. And anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will become a member of David's line, saved out of darkness into light. I hope that describes you. I hope it's true of you. If it is, you are royalty. You're royalty. The Bible says very plainly in Ephesians and Colossians and elsewhere that you're seated with Christ in heavenly places in a spiritual way. And one day when your body runs its course here or the Lord comes back, you bodily will be gathered to be seated at the right hand of Christ and to reign with him in heaven. You're princes and princesses, even now, yet you're in secret. You look like just regular old people. And some people even treat you like you're nobody. But you've been adopted and loved and saved by a somebody to be called his own, his child, his precious, royal, chosen people. If you are royalty, believing in Jesus Christ, God says, just like I ordered every detail in David's life and the life of his 600 kingdom members with him, so also I order every detail of your lives. 
You can grieve over the war, but I rule over the war. You can grieve over the sickness, but I rule over sickness. You can grieve over the strife within your family, but I rule over strife. You can grieve over the devil, but I rule over the devil. You can grieve over sin, but I rule over sin. Every detail in this chapter is meant to help us see that God is causing David not to turn away from him, nor to die in any war or battle, but to be a king, acting like a king, even before he's revealed as king. That's the invitation I make to every one of you. Know your royalty, and let's act that way, anticipating the day that we will one day be revealed as the royal sons and daughters of the living God. I want you to see the details with me. Look carefully. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag, on the third day, they've been walking for 60 miles away from the battle with Saul and the Israelites and the Philistines, and they're coming back thrilled Tired, but thrilled. We didn't have to fight against Saul. We would have never done that. We didn't have to tell the Philistines we were traitors. They would have killed us. God freed us and spared us. Now we're going back to our wives and our children and our ziklag and the fires and the smell of cooking food and the breezes blowing over the high hill of Ziklag and the beautiful skies overhead and the safe and comfortable homes and finally to rest and put our weapons down. And about a mile out from Ziklag, they can see smoke, a column of smoke, black and rising, billowing above Ziklag. And they turn with horror in their hearts toward each other. The Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire. And since they find no bodies, verse 2, they had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. So every wife and son and daughter of the men of David, 600 men, are kidnapped. Probably intended to be sold into slavery, which was the best way that the Amalekites could gain wealth from kidnapping people. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Can you imagine the horror, the shock, if you came home from work, father or dad or husband, and you found your house completely burned and your family completely kidnapped and taken from you? You don't know what's happened. Are they dead where they are? What's happened to them? What's being done to them? Why did this happen? In the day when David, so weary, having walked 60 miles with his friends, having just been spared a horrible war, and yet his friends now seeing their wives and sons and daughters kidnapped away and all of their homes burned to the ground, they are together with such grief that it can't be expressed. Look at verse 4. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. That's how I feel about Ukraine. That's how I feel about places where believers are being violated and atrocities being perpetrated against them. Jesus is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knows the pain that you're going through or have gone through 
or one day will. He knows the depth of loss. This isn't just a war where well-trained armies take their weapons and fight out on a field of battle. No, no, no. This is atrocity. This is evil. This is meant to terrorize and victimize. This is crime. And we're watching the very same thing unfold in our media. And we know that while we go through our day here, Ukraine is going through their night there. What's happening in between each of my sentences and your thoughts? Verse 5, David's two wives also had been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel, Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and David was greatly distressed. He's not only distressed because he's lost his family. He's not only distressed because he had just about put his own men in harm's way in these two different battles that they could have ended up in and God spared them from. But he left Ziklag unprotected. And the Amalekites discovered that and found that out and stole all the people all the wealth, and burned the city to the ground. And some of the men within his 600 are so weary and so grieved over the loss of their sons and daughters and wives that they turn on him, verse 6, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David, rather, David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. Maybe God's not with David. Maybe his games and his double agent stuff has been not of God. And maybe that's not been doing any good. And maybe he's in fact the problem. We should get rid of him. Let's stone David. The very thing David did against the Philistine Goliath with one stone in chapter 17 to begin his military career. He with one stone applied a sentence of justice against the blaspheming Goliath. So they want to stone him now for he seems to have led them into this great sorrow and distress and atrocity. David doesn't fight back. He doesn't gain in an argument. He doesn't boast in himself. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't threaten them. He doesn't lord it over them. Look what David does. This is what to do, Ukraine. This is what to do, faith family, when you're facing loss after loss and sorrow upon sorrow. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Saul ran away from God in his sorrows. Saul goes to make a deal with the devil and speaks to a witch. And here's the worst possible news. You're going to die within hours, you and your sons. What does David do in his deepest hour of sadness and longing and stress and atrocity? He strengthens himself in the Lord his God. If you're overwhelmed with sorrows, if you're overwhelmed with bad news, if you're overwhelmed with fears and even your friends are turning against you, here's what to do. Strengthen yourself in the Lord your God. What did that mean? What does it mean to strengthen ourselves in the Lord our God? Well, the clues are this. Back in chapter 23, David was very, very fearful of Saul coming to kill him when he was at Horesh. Saul's son, Jonathan, loved David. Jonathan came to David and said to him, trust in God, remember God, and he strengthened his hand in God. Chapter 23 says, that's the same phrase as what David does for himself here. No doubt, David is remembering himself and his friend David 
or rather Jonathan, he might even be thinking of Jonathan fighting with his father Saul 60 miles away at the battle that Saul and his men left. David strengthens himself in the Lord his God. It means three big things. One, it means he goes to God and says, search me and try me. Is any of this happening, Lord, because you are getting my attention? Is any of this happening because there's sin in me? Is any of this happening because I am wrong? I'm open before you. That's what strengthening begins with, is a wide open position before God. God, I will confess it if you convict me of whatever sin I have committed. The second thing it means is it means I am going to remember all that you are and all that you've done. I'm going to reflect on your word and I'm going to take it and seep it deep into my soul so that I remember who you are and what kind of a God you are and how you have protected and made promises to me all the way through my life. Strengthening himself in God means he's going to rehearse every glorious thing he's ever heard about God. This is the mandate for Sunday after Sunday preaching. This is the mandate for going through chapters of the Bible. This is the mandate for memorizing scripture. This is the mandate for reading good, sound books written about the Bible and for Sunday schools of every sort and stripe and kind so that we keep pouring into our heads the very things we will need to remember in our crisis when we're strengthening ourselves in God. That's why all of this is so important. It's investing, it's investing, it's investing. It's like the great vat the golden vat of prayers, liquid prayers up in heaven in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. For a half hour, all the prayers of the saints are poured into this vat for centuries and centuries, and then at the right time, the angel pours it out on the earth, and all of God's will is done. So also, the word of God is poured into your soul like a massive reservoir, and that's what you strengthen yourself on in your day of crisis. The third thing it means is that once you have strengthened yourself in the Lord your God, you are now ready to act. Now you're ready to act. You know what the will of God is for the situation, and you've got the power in your soul to do it. Some of you might be waiting for God to give you some direction in life. You might be aware of what that direction is, but you need the emotional and spiritual strength to step out in it. This is how it happens. Pause and strengthen yourself in the Lord your God, and he will give you the strength to act. Look at verse 7. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. God doesn't want David to wonder what to do. He wants to know, for sure, you will overtake those Amalekites, and for sure, you will rescue your wives and children and all your belongings and more. You see, if you're a king, a president, a leader of a country, this is how to lead. Layer upon layer, sorrow upon sorrow should drive you to strengthen yourself in the Lord God and then to ask the Lord with the help of others around you, your wise and trusted counselors, how you might act on it and the Lord will speak clearly. Time after time, the elders of this church have faced difficult questions, whether it's finances or pastoral care matters or COVID issues or interacting with governments. And the Lord has met us and unified us miraculously 
each time by this very design we have sought and strengthened ourselves in the Lord individually and together as an elder council. Husbands, this kind of leadership, this kind of God-saturated leadership is what your wives are looking for in you. Your wives do not want you to look merely to them to ask them what should happen and then you do it. They don't want the moral nature of your character and choices and the, the spiritual flavor and aroma of your home just to be defined by them and you just simply carry out what they've already said. No, no. They don't want to be your mother. They want to be your wife. And they want to see that when you as a husband are faced with trials in your home because of finances or health or strife or questions with children or questions with other issues that come from the right and the left. Your wife wants to see that you go hard after God, that you, husband, strengthen your hand in the Lord your God. She wants to trust that you trust God. She wants to know that you've heard from the Lord. David's leading like a superb king here. That's why God permitted the burning of Ziklag. You'll see that in a moment. Fathers, mothers, who are charged with leading children, let them see how you seek the Lord, how you love God more than you love them, how you love God more than you love each other. Deacons and elders, pastors. Let your people see that you love pleasing God more than you love pandering and manipulating and pleasing the people. And let them see that you love God and seek to please Him more than you seek to please the wider culture who's not yet been saved. This is David showing us what a God-saturated God-centered, God-enthralled life is like. A man after God's own heart, as David has described. He's demonstrating it right here. My friends want to stone me. I knew my playing a double agent was going to get me in trouble. You were so kind, God, to spare us from having to fight against our own kinsmen, the Israelites. We wouldn't have done that. And you spared us from being killed as traitors by the Philistines. I don't know what to do, God. All I smell is ashes. I see no bodies. I'm hungry, I'm weary, and all my men are hungry and weary. We've walked for 60 miles. What should I do? He strengthened himself, and the Lord is God. And now God says, pursue and overtake them, and it surely will happen. So David sets out, verse 9, 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook at Bezor where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, and he, 400, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook at Bezor. Of course they were too tired. Of course they were weak. Of course they were near to sickness or even some near to death. The 200 stay back, rest by the brook. 
A smaller band will go on. God gets the greater glory, you know, when we boast in our weakness, when we give up soldiers, and when we give up our arms and give up trusting in ourselves. For apart from Christ, we can do nothing, Jesus said. Oh, the glory God gets by the great, mighty acts of salvation and rescue he achieves for tiny, weak, small number groups like us. Verse 11. They found... An Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. What's an Egyptian doing up here? And he's in the open country. What are the likelihood possibilities of this group of 400 coming upon a sick Egyptian in the open country? Zero. They were kind to him. They gave him bread. He ate, water to drink, piece of cake and figs, two clusters of raisins. They treated this guy better than they've ever treated themselves. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, and he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. Huh. So the same time David and his men are leaving the battle, joyfully coming back to Ziklag, takes three days, the same time the Amalekites started to burn Ziklag three days ago, now this guy says, I haven't eaten for three days. David said to him, to whom do you belong? Where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, a servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. The Amalekites just left him to die because three days ago they were on their way to burn Ziklag. This guy got sick. They said, leave him. He's just a slave. He's just an Egyptian. And they made a raid against the Negev of Cherethites. And in fact, verse 14 says this guy was present when they made a raid against Ziklag with fire. David would have been right just to kill that guy right then because he basically confesses, I'm the one who burned your whole place down. David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this band. Well, evidently David swore to this man because this man, in fact, took them down to where the Amalekites were. This is God saying, I was preparing your victory, David, right when I was permitting your stress and sorrow and suffering. Think about that. Right at the same time, David is being rescued from the battle with the Philistines and Israel, is right at the same time his home and and family are being kidnapped and burned, this guy gets sick right at that time. God rules over when people get sick. This guy is the solution, the promise, the pointer to how David is going to surely pursue and take over the Amalekites and rescue his family. In fact, the families of all his men. Right at the time you're experiencing the greatest darkness... Right at the time you're experiencing the greatest loss, unspeakable loss, God is already at work creating the solution and your salvation. You cannot, as a believer in Jesus Christ, go through any hardship that God does not have a good and kind purpose for. He never wastes pain, but instead intends pain to draw you to him and reveal your true nature as a royal king or queen of the Son of God. Let's keep reading so that you can see this unfold, and we'll look at it more carefully next time. 16, and when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing. Apparently, they weren't expecting 
a raid. Apparently, they weren't expecting David. They're celebrating that they had gotten all of these slaves and all of this wealth from all of these communities where they had raided these Amalekites. It says, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and the land of Judah, and David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. 24 hours, not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who fled off on camels. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Can you imagine the reunion? Can you imagine the joy when every one of David's men receives his wife and son and daughter back and all the spoil, and they receive back the wives and the sons and the daughters of the 200 they left behind at the river? Verse 20 said, David also captured all the flocks and herds and the people drove the livestock out before him and said, this is David's spoil. You see, God orders the providence of all these events, the Egyptian and when he got sick and how he got rescued from fighting in another war. And and he orders the fire at Ziklag and he orders the way the priest hears, yes, you shall surely go and pursue them and rescue them. And how David goes with his men, has 600 and then it's 200 less down to 400. All of that is ordered together so that you and I would see God is raising up King David and this is how King David lives. He strengthens his hand in God. Every struggle and difficulty, David Strengthen your hand in God. That's how you'll lead Israel. That's how you'll lead your family. That's how you will lead your people spiritually. That's how you will lead your friends and even how you will lead your enemies. That's the message of this whole chapter and especially this first half of the chapter. Strengthen your hands in God no matter what you're facing, no matter what smell of ashes and smoke are burning all around you and everything is falling apart. Strengthen your hands in God wherever you are. David won a victory here, and it's a sweet victory. But what about the places of the world where there is no victory? What about your life when the wife and the sons and the daughters are not returned? And the livestock and the spoil has not been returned to you? What victory is available for those who are royalty in Jesus Christ, and yet today and tomorrow and next year and next decade, it seems like there is pain and sorrow and difficulty that I'm enduring, not just once or for one episode, but chronically. David's wiping out of the most sinful people, the Amalekites, here in these last verses we just read, points us forward, doesn't it, to the son of David coming with the mandate and mission of God behind him, for he has heard the word of the Lord, the son of David has, and he obeys the word of the Lord, and he's coming with a mighty sword of the Spirit, and he is going to do battle against the Amalekites spiritually on the earth. Sin and the devil and evil and darkness this son of David is going to defeat far worse than a small tribe in ancient uh, Israel, the Amalekites. Now, sin and the devil and evil of all sorts must be defeated. And we need our David, the son of David, Jesus Christ the righteous, to come forward and fight our battles for us. How does he do it? Does he take up a sword and say, let's call those people wrong? Let's find those as our enemy and cut off their heads? No. The way the Son of David, Jesus Christ the righteous, 
comes with the mandate of God's word behind him to do battle as our king is he says, I'm coming not just as your king, I'm coming also to be on your behalf. You're a Malachite. I'm going to be the righteous king who has not sinned and obeys God perfectly, seeks him and strengthens myself in him. Let this cup pass from me, Lord, but not my will but yours be done. Matthew 26, Jesus in the garden. He's our King David. He strengthens himself in God. But the wonder of the gospel is that you have to see that he becomes your Amalekite as well. He says, when I do violence, I am going to order it so that I do violence against myself. I will take the sins of the world and I will put it on me so that I am Amalekites times infinity. Requiring an infinitely, infinitely precious sacrifice to appease the wrath of an infinitely holy God. And my sacrifice on the cross where the sword kills me. Where it's my blood that flows. Where it's my body that's broken. So that you Amalekites never once receive eternal punishment for your sins and your guilt. It's scandalous and shocking, isn't it? We're meant to see foretastes and pointers to the glorious plans of God as he unfolds history and shows us that in Christ we have a David-like figure. David's life is a promise and Christ is the promise fulfilled. I invite you to trust in this Jesus Christ. I invite you to give yourself to him. Not just because you're David and you can strengthen yourself in him. That's the lot and the joy of every believer like David to strengthen ourselves in God. But if you're feeling much more like an Amalekite, if you knew the darkness in my soul, you would not welcome me as royalty and God wouldn't either. But you must know that the infinite worth of Christ's death on the cross means there's more grace in God than there is sin in you and me. We come before God and all that we deserve from a holy God for our sin is wrath. But because of Jesus Christ, if we come shrouded in Jesus Christ, all we receive is mercy. And God has ordered your life, friend. He's ordered your life. He's ordered the three days and people getting sick and who fights wars and where the fires break out and who moves where and who decides what and how this happens. He orders it all so that you would see the beauty of Christ right at this moment and say, he is my David and he has taken my place as my Amalekite. Receiving him means quietly before the Lord you will just say, Lord, I receive you. I receive your sacrifice. I receive you to myself. Please receive me to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for, for Samuel 30. And I thank you for the complexity and the sweetness of it. For in digging in, we see all these intricate ways in which you have ordered good for your servant David. Yet David points us forward to Christ. 
And we see how every detail of our lives and every detail of history climaxes on Jesus Christ. How unlikely it would be that a man who lived for 33 years in a small corner of Palestine would be the most influential figure in the history of the human condition. How unlikely would it be that this man who is both God and man would come and would die on the cross and take the sins of the world upon himself that all who receive him might have their sins forgiven and washed away and might live with him forever in righteousness, joy, and peace. Lord, I thank you for David, but I thank you infinitely more for the son of David, Jesus Christ. And I thank you for his victory that he won against the sin he took upon himself when he died upon the cross and rose again from the dead. I pray that if there's any person whom whom you have perfectly and powerfully appointed to be in this room and in the hearing of my voice at this moment, who has not received you, that they would receive you today. That they might come to the front and pray with those who are here ready to pray with them for the receiving of Christ. Or they might remain very simply in their chair. And while singing and conversations go on around them, they might do sweet business with you. Or a conversation over the lunch meal. Or a conversation that might ensue this afternoon or evening or days ahead. You can do it, Lord. Nothing is beyond your providential ordering of details. You've got good plans for every one of us. And for all who are in Christ, would you teach us, as you taught David, how to strengthen our hands in you? We need it now. We will need it then. Through Christ we pray all these things. Amen. Let's stand and